My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name is Scott Wampler, the co-host of the show you're listening to, and I am joined, as always, by my devastatingly handsome co-host, Mr. Eric Vespi. Eric, hey, say hi to the crowd. What's up? Hi, everybody. How are you doing today? I'm, you know, it's it's been busy. You know, I've been in my kitchen and I've been in my living room and my bathroom mm-hmm. and my bedroom, you know, taking the tour. Very exciting stuff. We'll do a bonus app on that. Uh, We are joined today by a very exciting guest who has picked a super exciting King title for us to talk about. Uh, He is the director behind such films as The Exorcism of Emily Rose, Sinister, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and, of course, uh, Marvel's Doctor Strange. All told, his films have generated over $1 billion at the worldwide box office, but in my household, he will always be known with affection as the visionary director behind Hellraiser Inferno. Ladies and gentlemen, oh, welcome yeah. to stage, Mr. Scott Derrickson. <laughs> Hello, gentlemen. Uh, thank you for the Hellraiser Inferno love. Um, my my uh, 2001 self thanks you and feels validated. <laughs> well, I'm a, big, uh, I'm a big Hellraiser guy, so very exciting to speak to you. And, Let's turn uh, this into a, can we just make this a Hellraiser podcast instead? I have <laughs> discussion going actually, on about, I, about I, the director videos. I'm kind of working on a Hellraiser show, so maybe we can save that and I'll bring you back for that one. But we are here today to talk about uh, your pick for, for, for our show, which was Stephen King's The Shining. Very exciting pick. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm very fortunate that I was given the opportunity to, uh, to choose this one. I'm sure that uh, others wanted it, but I, I know that others wanted it, but it worked out that I ended up getting it. So here I am. Yeah, well, first come, first serve. That's how the show works. You know, I love it. Got to strike while that iron's hot. I suppose we just start off as we normally do, uh, talking about your introduction to the world of Stephen King. How old were you? What book was it? What got you into it? You know, tell us your origin story. I mean, like a lot of people my age, I, I think I, I got to know Stephen King through through movies first, and and was you know watching uh, Stephen King movies on cable, uh, especially before I read any of the books. But my dad was a big Stephen King reader, so he was the one who I started talking to about the books because we had seen several of the movies together, and I believe Christine was the first thing I read of his. Um, and some, so they're all kind there was a little pocket of time. I was probably, uh, you know, 13, 14, definitely read the shining in there somewhere. And, and I think that, that I read the stand around the same time. And, uh, and those, and, and those were the recommendations that I had been given, um, by my dad, like read these ones. These are, these are the really, the really great ones. So, um, that was, that was my introduction to it. And then, and then, sort of would cherry pick things as I would go, uh, you know, through the years. I think my favorite of his books is probably The Stand, which is a, a lot of people would say it's amazing how how that book has been pillaged by books and television. It's I almost feel like it's unmakeable now because it'll feel like a rip off of so many other things that ripped it off. But I also really love Firestarter. Um, mm. Book Firestarter is. Probably the one that I end up talking 
to people about the most because I really? think it's yeah, I think because I think it's probably of all the books of his that I've read, it's probably the one that I found to be the most captivating and the most um toweringly superior to to the to the film and and, and the literary and relationship qualities in that book are are it's very dense it's densely written i, I you know it, this is all in my at least in my memory i found it to be a more challenging read than even stylistically than um mo- most of his other books i think of all this i think of all the books that i've read that became movies i saw the movie first i think that's an important distinction to make also yeah, I, th- I think that a lot of people are like that. I know that um, I started reading King at a very early age, and I my first King book was Cujo, and I read that in sixth grade, and I read it because I'd seen the movie, and I figured if I was I, I wanted to read something that you know was an actual adult book and not not something that you know was eighty pages that I could buy at Scholastic Fair or whatever, you know. Right, right. Um, and uh, <laughs> not a book for sixth graders, by the way. I just want to point out you what. That is not a book for sixth graders. Oh, it, it is absolutely not. <laughs> but my my thought process was, you know, I won't understand everything in this, but I've seen the movie. So I know what the characters, when they mention a character, I know who they are. You know, I picture D. Wallace or uh, Danny Pintaro or, you know, whoever. It's like I can picture the characters. I know the movie. It's a fairly simple story. You know, I thought going into it, you know, one location, a dog and, uh, you know, and, and two people. Um uh, and of course, you know, what's crazy about that book is rereading it now. It's like I, I sixth grade me read through so much melodrama, you know, divorce, <laughs> you know, pending <laughs> divorce, you know, adultery, melodrama stuff before it got to the the book. But I think that it's exactly like you, like I, I, I at the very beginning, I picked the stuff I'd seen. So I did read The Shining earlier. Uh, I read Christine early, you know, all the all the stuff I'd actually seen as a movie. Yeah, I think I, I'm. I'm actually, and now that I'm thinking about it, I think Salem's Lot was the first thing I read, not Christine, because I'm. I'm also looking at the dates that they were. I just pulled up the 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 list that they were there, and I definitely read. I mean, Christine wasn't published until 1983, and I definitely read Salem's Lot before that. So um, yeah, and and uh, and gosh, looking at this now, I'm just like, oh, why did why why haven't I actually read The Dead Zone? I need. That's, I'm. I'm, I'm going to buy that while we're on the phone. While we're on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a great one, especially uh, especially these days. It, it's weird how uh, that era of King is coming back so so crazy. I mean, people keep comparing Trump to Stilson in the Dead Zone, and and uh, you know, and now we're living through our our own you know real world version of Captain Trips in a way. You know, with it, it's uh, King starting to look like a witch. I think we're going to have to burn him at the stake. Oh, it's, it's really true. And, you know, I, I'm also old enough to to remember that time. You know, I remember going, walking through the shopping mall in uh, where I grew up in Westminster, Colorado, the brand new shopping mall that they had. And there was a bookstore. And I remember seeing the big giant stand that they had for the stand. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and our, you know, I, I don't know if that was a reissue or not, but, I, I, you know, the book was, was uh you know, was written in 1978. And I still remember being in a big shopping mall and seeing that. And that was the first time that I was like, wow, what is that? And talking to my dad about about that book in particular, which was also his favorite of all of Stephen King's books. 
Yeah, that that's kind of a parent's favorite book. That was my my mom. Like it was between that and Misery for her. Those were her two, her her two favorites. But yeah, no, I, I firmly believe, and and we'll I'm sure we'll get to an episode on the stand at some point. But uh, I firmly believe that the stand is going to be uh, like taught in schools. You know, at some point, it is just such a long book that when you get to the middle of it and you're turning pages, you get to a point where it doesn't feel like the book is you're getting closer to the end. Right. It just feels like you're, you're living in there. Yeah. Um, and you, and yeah. you actually, you get to a place where you don't want it to end. You're like, Oh, I'm, I, I, it's like a great TV series. Like, I hope this just goes on for nine seasons, you know? Yeah. You uh, love the characters. Yeah. And you just yeah. want to st- stay with them. Yeah. The okay. only book that my dad wouldn't let me read. I remember when he was like making suggestions, the one that he distinctive, like decidedly did not want me to read was pet cemetery. Yeah. Yeah, he was just like, yeah, that movie. He he just goes, that book's evil. Don't read that book. (laughs) (laughs) He's just like, he really, he's, you know, I think he read everything that Stephen King wrote, but he really had a bad vibe about that, about that story. He was like, it's just an evil book. That was how he put it. Yeah, all right. He and uh, Stephen King himself feel the same way. He King didn't want to publish it, and very famously didn't want to publish that book when he finished it. Oh no, too dark even for him. Yeah, love it. All right. So why the, why the shining? Why, like what, what made you want to kind of deep dive into this? Was it a combination of the Kubrick movie and the book, or is there, you know, something very specific about the book? It, that... it, 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 it's specifically the combination, you know, because I, I, because I really have um, so much appreciation for what both things are and, and, you know, have nothing but respect for, Stephen King's um, disparagement uh, uh, of the movie. The film is, is is certainly in my top three favorite horror films that have ever been made. And that, you know, I'm, I'm in good company. I'm sure plenty of other cinephiles and filmmakers feel the same way about it. But I, but I, I do love the book for what the book is and for, for how different it is and for what it was, I think, essentially about and what it, what it left me with even reading it when I was younger and understanding the moral fortitude of it, the, the kind of emotional passion that was, that was present in it. It's still scary as it's shit, you know, but I think both the film and the book are so accomplished in such different ways and, and both deserve the highest praise. And because the, because the movie is such a pop cultural icon now, I don't think there's enough conversation that goes on about the greatness of the book and 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 why the book was an, such an important book in in King's um, you know uh, bibliography. Yeah, oh yeah, That's for sure. Word, book on, book yeah, on. bibliography. Yeah, sure. Did I use that word correctly? I guess I did. It's it, that's how I would have used it. So if you're wrong, I'm wrong too. Uh, yeah, which really, uh, which you shouldn't take much solace in because I'm wrong. I believe often. the correct ter- terminology is his book list. Uh, that's <laughs> yes. what book list. In the industry. Yes. <laughs> well, this is you know my my writing partner is a published novelist, and so clearly I'm somebody who has zero interest in ever writing a novel. So I wouldn't even uh, I've never even considered having my own book list or bibliography. So. <laughs> well, I, I think you're um, you're onto something with like how important this is for King himself because this is. Um, having reread uh, a lot of his earlier work recently, Carrie and Salem's Lot are both very interesting uh, ideas that grab you like immediately. But in terms of the writing, they're they're still very loose. And The Shining, to me, when I reread it recently, really kind of felt like 
the king that I remember reading in his prime. Right. Like this is where he's, he's like firing on all cylinders. This is where the end of every chapter you're you're pushed into the next chapter, whether you're wanting to go to bed or whatever, you know, whether you want to stop reading or not, he's, he's pulling you along. Totally. Yeah. I, 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 I went back into a higher gear. Yeah. I went back and reread. Um, I was, I tried to reread the entire book before this podcast, which I didn't do, but, but as far as I got through it, um, I, I, I was struck by the same thing by the power and the density of the prose itself but also just how layered the storytelling was and how meaningful everything that he was putting in there was. And you realize, God, there's so much packed into this book that, that, you know, the movie doesn't even begin to touch. And, uh, and, and the, that compelling feeling of, of um, re- remembering the compelling feeling of reading it and having no idea where it was going. And it is just scary. It's just a terrifying book. And a lot of those early books that he wrote were more great, you know, fiction and, and, you know, th- they were almost like great thrillers. Certainly the stand, I wouldn't classify as horror fire, Firestarter, I don't, I wouldn't classify that as horror either. Um, Salem's lot. Yes. I didn't read Carrie, but the shining is just balls out scary. You know, it's, it, it is, it is the point at which he really, I think announced himself as, as the, the premier horror writer in the world. I agree with that. In fact, it's, I think that, you know, he's a horror author. That's what he's known for. That's why we love him. Right. But very few King books actually frighten me. Yeah. The Shining is definitely one of them. Uh, the Shining, it, I didn't come prepared to answer this question that I just asked myself. So I can't. No, I know. I, 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 <laughs> yeah. Pet Cemetery did, did that for me too. Um, but but the shining uh is the only one that i can remember more than just oh i had this feeling while while reading certain sec- uh, sections of the book to me like th- there's a there's a two the, the bathtub scene you know where danny first goes in there and uh you know the woman in the tub is revealed uh sticks in my mind um it, they're all danny centric scenes maybe it's just you know shows my age whenever you know i i read it as a kid so i was you know be able to put myself into danny's shoes uh, easier, but um, it was that scene it, uh, scene where he has to jump over uh, the fire hose that's trying to bite him like a oh, snake. I, I got yeah, I got I, I got past that place. That that seems terrifying. It it's the, just, just the way he that. wrote it. It's tense, like you yeah. like you're you're gripping the book. And the other one, um, which I'm not sure you would have gotten gotten to because I think it's a, about two thirds of the way through the book. Uh, sure, go for it. Is it the elevator scene? No, that's a great scene too. No, this one is uh, the one that got me. Is Danny is playing in the playground? Um, oh, that's not. It's not the. It's the tunnel. It's not the hedge mon- The the hedge animals, uh, which which are creepy. But he's like trapped in a. You know, he's in a, a a little like concrete cylinder thing, buried in snow, so he can't see anything, and he senses that there's a dead kid in there with him, a kid that died on the playground, and he. Like just the way he he writes it, you, Danny never really sees him. He just senses him there, and he's you know the king describes you know the the smell of you know his rotting flesh and and like the rustling of the dry leaves you know at the end of the the you know that there's something in there with him in the darkness and he can't see it and he like gets out just in time before it grabs him and and pulls him in and wants to play with him or whatever. Which uh, by the way is kind of the closest that we get to the. The uh, Grady twins in the book, because in the book, uh, the twins uh, uh, don't exist. I think Grady was there by himself, if I'm remembering the book correctly. The tunnel scene is great, and it is like viscerally uh, scary. The reason the elevator scene scared the shit out of me was 
they have enough time to, in the scene, just for anyone that hasn't read it, they're all sleeping and they hear the elevator like moving floors in the middle of the night. Should not be moving at all because there's no one else in the hotel. You know, first things first, that's like one of my biggest fears is like hearing someone moving around in my house when, you know, uh, when I'm asleep and just doing something routine that would scare the shit out of me. Secondly, when they arrive at the elevator, like it stops mid between floors. And there's a great part where like Wendy jumps up into it and she's sort of dangling over the precipice. Then she gets up into it and there's masks and confetti up there. That scares the fuck out of me because now it's like it's pulled the um, the horror of it into the real world. It's not like a thing that they may or may not have hallucinated or maybe they like heard a noise and thought it was something else. Here's confetti in your hand and masks sitting at the bottom of that elevator something is like horribly wrong and there's that's the best way i can explain like why that unnerved me so much i remember reading that scene and having to like put the book down for a minute you know it really stuck with me yeah i i uh i i remember as a you know i like i said probably 12, 13, when I read it. And I, I think the thing that I found the most disturbing in the experience of reading it, and I was, you know, I was into scary stuff. I used to build haunted houses at Halloween for the neighborhood kids. And, you know, so I kind of, and I, I liked scary movies and I got into all that kind of stuff, but I, I, I'd never seen anything on, on television and had never read any stories that just had this turning of, of a, of a father on his own family. And I, 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 for me, it was that all the supernatural occurrences were scary, but it was, it was just the experience of that. And I think in the same way, I was probably identifying more with, with Danny, even though he's so young in the, in the book, but still, you know, it was a kid in, in the story. And that I found, I found that to be the thing that I think was that, that, that tracked with me most in, in, in the days that I was reading it. And in the, in the, in the weeks after I read it, you know, just how scary it was that this father had done the things and tried to do the things that he tried to do in that book and went to the places. And, and I didn't really have a good concept, I think of insanity or madness or really what that is, but it was, and, and, and remember this too, that, that I, I do think that when you read a book, when you read something that has a formative effect on you, of course it depends on the age, but it also depends on what era you grew up in, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I was, you know, I'm old enough to have some of my earliest, you know, elementary school, middle school kind of years being marked by the the first presence of serial killers in pop culture. You know, like the the the, the I remember the Helter Skelter book. You know, kid, I had friends of mine who were I never read it. I read it as an adult, but I never read it as a kid. And I had friends in in middle school, uh, in junior high who who read that book, and then people were. Friends of mine were trading that book around, and and Ted Bundy was. I was. I grew up in in Colorado, and Ted Bundy was, you know, in the news. And so this the idea of the homicidal character was 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 something that was really in the air for people my age, you know, at that time. And then to have that be in put in the intimate construct of a family dynamic was terrifying. Just terrifying, you know. And and I think that that was the thing that was the most unsettling for me about, about that book. And, and I think that that was also, I think that that was King's primary intention where he wanted the most terror to fundamentally come from was this very basic idea in the book of this very basic idea of a father turning on his own family. 
Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. it's. It, I mean, he's. We'll 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 get to his criticisms of the movie later, but that that is his his number one thing that he didn't like about the Kubrick film is that he wanted to see Jack Torrance as the good guy. And you read the book, and he King described him in an interview as a uh, Jack Torrance himself is a haunted house. The Overlook's not the only haunted house in the in the story. Jack Torrance himself, he's haunted by his abusive father. <laughs> He's haunted by alcohol. You know, it's like all this stuff that he has he has done mm-hmm. to kind of um, nurse the trauma, you know, of, of his past. And um, it, it comes across very clearly that that uh, in many aspects of the character, King is putting a lot of himself there. You know, uh, I think he he's even admitted, you know, at the time, you know, he was struggling with with his alcohol issues and. And and so he, it, it's you know a weirdly autobiographical character who then turns and turns on his uh, uh, his family and tries to murder them, uh, but yeah no it, it you're you're right it is he he's not just a monster though you see you see where he's coming from you see his internal uh, struggles even because it's you know a novel you can get inside his head and you know hear him you know debating with himself and and fighting the the worst instincts that the overlook's trying to pull out of him and 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 all that and, well, and for, for, for sure that's the, the 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 meaning of that book or where where king was coming from and trying to what that book meant to him and what his emphasis was in writing it was that it you know it was a a story with great human individual moral meaning you know and 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 i think that is obvious and that's the obvious radical difference between the book and the movie. But, but, but I think my essential point about, about the scariness of it was that I think the simple genius of the book is that you can, you know, lots of, lots of writers write books about, about characters and their, and their struggles and, you know, and there's a metaphor going on for, for the story and the narrative and especially in horror for whatever horror they're going through. And it, and it, and it aligns with their own individual, individual struggles of the father, in this case, his abusiveness, his alcoholism, all of that. But to somehow make that very same thing, what's actually scary in the book that that character becomes scary. That's the thing that I still, I look at and I think, yeah, just, has anybody really done that that well anywhere since, you know, it's, it was so new and it did it, it felt like a different kind of horror than um than certainly than any of the horror that i had been exposed to in 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 uh in books or in films or television but i still think about it now i think yeah i don't i, don't, I can't think of a another piece of horror writing that i've read that does a better job of taking the protagonist and turning the protagonist um on it the the, the empathetic characters in a way that still is a moral tale and ultimately a kind of moral redemption for that character in the book, not in the film, but in the book. Another thing that he's sort of monkeying around with here, and and this is something that King has talked about before, is that when he was raising his kids and when he wrote this book specifically in, you know, in conjunction with his alcoholism, he was also finding himself frustrated with his kids, you know, and, and getting angry at them and feeling like urges, you know, like, he, you know, he didn't say anything specifically about murdering anyone with a croquet mallet, you know, in real life. But he he was speaking to, I think, what I think is probably a, a universal thing where you feel rage or an impulse towards violence towards somebody you love, you know, and you can separate right. that. You can separate that from the alcoholism and the, and whatever other demons that Jack Torrance is dealing with. But 
Uh, I'm, I'm not a parent. I don't have kids. Uh, I don't plan on having kids, but I know how uh, easily frustrated I am. And I can imagine a scenario where I would just like, you know, like with, with a baby or a small child, I'm just being like, please stop fucking crying. Like it's, uh, I hear horror stories from my friends and I, I wonder like, would I have the, would I have the nerve, the, the constitution to deal with that sort of thing? I don't know that I honestly would. And so I imagine that that kind of struck a nerve with parents who maybe hadn't admitted that to themselves or maybe weren't willing to explore that area of their personality in any real way. I just think that must have struck a chord and and probably helped the the book along to be such a success. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're not um, you're not wrong. It's certainly, you know, that is where the real horror, like all the supernatural stuff is. It, you know, it is uh, fun and is very well done, but it, it really does come down to the horror of somebody you love, uh, who, even though that person loves you, has the ability to hurt you. Totally. Um, yeah. And, here, and here's the, here's, and again, not to, not to divert yet in, into the movie, because this is the biggest, I think the biggest difference between the two, but just talking about the book on its own, you know, how different of an experience would the book be if it if the ending didn't have that moment you know when Jack Torrance manages to break free of the control and the possession that the hotel has in him and go try to warn Danny and 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 you know and make the, this this noble attempt you know to save them and and ultimately die this this kind of seemingly self-sacrificial death because if that hadn't happened that book would be would be so cynical, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, and I mean, in, in a way, like the movie, the movie, again, we'll save that, but it's like the movie, I wouldn't call it a cynical movie, but it's like that story is a story that for me goes so far and, and is, is so earnest in its, um, in its portrayal of, of Torrance's alcoholism and, and struggle and abuse and the madness that sets in. And, and, and there's such an empathetic and, and yet horrifying, portrayal there that gosh i just i can't imagine how i would have felt if everything that i love about that book is really connected to the fact that that he does have a kind of redemptive end in that in that book because because i felt so connected to that struggle even as a kid and then you know rereading as an adult i'm like oh this has a totally different meaning for me now you know now i identify with with this character much more but i think i think that that the fact that the book isn't and it's not a facile ending it's not an inconsequential ending but but there is a redemptive quality to what the author was seemingly working out when he wrote it i just think that's part of what of the greatness of the book that i that i personally value tremendously and value it as a totally separate thing than the movie yeah for sure i mean i think that's kind of the reason why um so many king novel fans really uh appreciated what mike flanagan did with dr sleep um because he was able to kind of marry that sentiment into um you know uh danny's ultimate fate in that in in that uh story and but doing it in in against the backdrop of the the Kubrick film, so he was able to somehow please both camps, which is which is kind of a, an incredible feat when you think about it. Yeah, for yeah, sure, it's, it's a fucking miracle. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> so, and, I, and by the way, okay. and, and I think the reason I think the reason that he did that, uh, I just felt like he did that by by um, keeping the iconography of 
of you know the the first film, but I, I felt like it was a, it was I really felt strongly that that on every level it was a Stephen King movie and not a, mm. not a not a Kubrick movie. And I thought that the best choice that Flanagan made in making Doctor Sleep was to not ever try to recreate the tonal dread or the tonal qualities of of the first film and and i because I, I i felt very nervous about that movie and i thought man if he tries to do that even if he succeeds it's going to be a fail and he didn't do that at all you know and it, instead it felt it felt very much like and i didn't read dr sleep but it felt very much like um, it felt like the shining to me you know it felt a lot like tonally like the way that the that, that the first that reading the book made me feel you know when i read it in, in terms of its tone and storytelling muscle and all of that. Yeah. Well, are we ready to kind of dig into the movie now you want to, or is you, or there anything else you want to talk about the the book? I mean, we'll, we'll dump, we'll jump back and forth between the two as we're talking about the movie, I'm sure. But uh, no, let's if go. there's let's anything go. else, the, 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 the movie let's, you know, we'll never run out of things to say about, about the Cooper. Movie. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I I've done a, a, a ridiculous amount of research and preparation for this podcast. Um, and that included a lot of reading a whole lot of early King interviews. Something that I found uh, very fascinating about that was when you read King's interviews, right when the movie was coming out, he's not as harsh on it as, as uh, he's vocally not, you know, not uh, happy with it, which is still, you know, a, a big deal. That's not something that typically happens where, you know, where the creator shit talks, uh, you know, a big, you know, big studio movie version of his, his thing. But even back then he was talking about like how, uh, his youngest kid like would run around like doing the Tony voice, you know, from, from the movie. Cause that's not in the, in the book. He doesn't vocalize, you know, Tony, you know, like, like, uh, right. Right. No, he sees, he sees him like a ghost almost. Uh, yeah, and and he, a quote that I found was um, that that I think is very fascinating is is I think he was interviewed. Uh, this I think this comes from a Playboy interview from 1983, and he he they asked him about it, and he said, "I have my days when I think that I gave uh, Kubrick a live grenade, which he heroically threw his body on." Um, <laughs> uh, which, like, if coming from King, you know, who you know is is uh, high praise. Um, but then again, you know, most of most of his stuff, you know, it all uh, boils down to um, uh, to two different things that I found. One is that he he called Kubrick a visceral skeptic and that, that just couldn't grasp the sheer inhuman evil of the Overlook Hotel. So he looked instead for evil in the characters and made the film into a domestic tragedy with only vaguely supernatural overtones. So he was he was upset, I think, that um, there wasn't a as much embracing of the afterlife. I think he even said at one point he got a phone call from Kubrick, like at three in the morning, uh, you know, while Kubrick was writing and he was like, Oh, you know what, what's going on? And Stan and Stan said, said, do you believe in God? Do you think there's a God? And King like said, well, yeah, no, I think, you know, it, you know, he goes on, I think there's something. And he goes on to this whole, like, you know, rumination of, of like a higher being. Um, and then Kubrick just says, no, I don't think there's a God and hangs up. I'm sorry, if we can pause <laughs> for just a second, can you imagine getting that phone call? Oh my God. <laughs> He's on the line and he wants to talk about God at three in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Shit. Oh my God. I, yeah. That was a missed opportunity. That needed to be a longer conversation. He did. <laughs> he did. He did. I do. I know that King did, uh, or that uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick did call, 
The Shining his most optimistic movie. And, <laughs> and when, and asked, when asked why, he said, because it's the only movie that presumes that there's life after death in any That's form. right. You know, so, um, but yeah, his, you know, his, I wonder if King's, dis- it's interesting because I hadn't, I didn't know that his disparagement of the movie was lesser you know, initially, and I wonder if it's because the critics were pretty hard on the, on the, on the film when it came out, you know, it was definitely, um, not a beloved movie critically. Um, no, when it, when it, it was nominated out. for multiple Razzies and, and made of many Stanley Kubrick movies to be. Familiar. Yeah. And I wonder, yeah. And I wonder if, I wonder if, if the way that it settled in, which I have theories about, about why it, you know, it settled in the way that it did, but I do know that, you know, I, I have paid attention to King's, well, first of all, my favorite anecdote by far that, that I've ever seen or read about regarding King and, and the, and the shining was actually on Twitter. And, uh, and you know, I'm good friends with Jason Blum. So I follow him. Um, and it was, I think it was, it was either Jason's feed or, or it was the Blumhouse feed. And maybe it was when they had announced that they were, they, they got the rights to Firestarter. I don't know. They were doing something with a Stephen King property and, uh, and they had just put this little thing up on the, on their a little tweet that just said, and it had a picture of, the Grady twins from the shining and had a question, which Stephen King adaptation is your favorite? And Stephen King replied and it just said, not this one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I, I mean, I I think you're, you're kind of um, right on in that uh, at, at the early days, the movie was getting beat up enough that I don't think King felt the need to super go out of his way. But then when the movie gained in popularity and, and kind of, became a pop culture uh behemoth that it is still you know it's a, it's a juggernaut man today even today um the imagery and the the music and all that um and i think as that grew into prominence i i have a, a an inkling that uh, king maybe felt it was diminishing people's it was burying his book a little bit and, and, it, and, and look i think that's a fair i think that's a really fair criticism you know for as an author i mean it definitely stripped the whole book of its basic purpose which was to tell a story it tell a tell a, a clean clear good story which the, i i would argue the shining doesn't do that very well it's not mm. it's you know the greatness of that movie not only doesn't have to do much with the storytelling but the subversion of telling a good story is part of what makes it great and what makes it effective that's not a something that the author of the original story is going to appreciate. But I, but I, I, I do, I think in all the things that I've read that King has said about it over the years, I remember reading, he called it a Cadillac with no engine in it, you know, mm-hmm. another storytelling, you know, insult. I do think it's the characters. I think that it's, I think it's the way that um, not just in the writing, uh, in the writing, in terms of the, the, the absence of, of the, of the quality storytelling, the meaning that we were talking about earlier about, you know, this regular father with a drinking problem, trying, you know, struggling with himself, struggling with his own, his own personal, you know, uh, demons in, in this, in this haunted hotel. I think that it's, it's the way that Stanley Kubrick encouraged his, his Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall and, and even Danny, you know, to, to not play in any, anything even remotely realistic. You know, he wasn't interested in realism when he made that movie. He and and he, you know, he, he spoke to Nicholson directly about how acting at that time, you know, in this, in, in, you know, drawing at 1980 at the end of the 70s, acting had become so obsessed with how real can you be and like the influence between Marlon Brando and Streetcar Named Desire, and then here comes 
you know, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and like all these, and, and Jack Nicholson was one of them with, with Easy Rider and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And it was like, how realistic can you be? You get more and more real and you get so real. It's as boring as real life, you know? <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and, and Kubrick has never been interested in that. He's never been interested in realistic performances. You know, the, the monotone, weird way that people talk in, in 2001, you know, it's just, you know, the, the, there's something about, about skewing performances into, into something that's that's serving the greater tone of the movie that he wants to, to see, and and as a result, I don't know what you're talking about. Doctor Strange Love is the most down to earth movie I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, uh, everyone <laughs> in Eyes Wide Shut behaves exactly like a real human being would. <laughs> and, and Peter and Peter Sellers, you know, he, he's he's uh, he's 100 percent realistic in all three roles, in, in, in that, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, I think, and I think that that that, that the that that's got to be something that's hard as the creator of those characters. It, like I picture myself having written, you know, Jack Torrance and having, you know, uh, written these characters and then wa- watching just the scene of them driving up in the car. They're already, when they're in the car driving up to the overlook, they're so weird. They're all mm-hmm. so weird. And I would feel like, is, is this a parody of my book is this making fun of the characters that I wrote? It's like, I, I wouldn't know how I could, how, how, process that because it was such a fundamentally different approach to storytelling altogether and but i think and 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 i do know he hated the shelly duvall character and said and and has i've read multiple times him talking about what he felt was a highly misogynistic portrayal of a female character you know he really really despised that i read it i mean once where he called her a shrieking dish rag Said that that's, what, that's that's what the character was like, and that man, I have never forgotten that. Oh my goodness, a shriek l- l- dish rag. Well, if you ever want to get canceled on Twitter, just throw that <laughs> yeah. in to, 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 to some uh, uh, woman making a good point, and that'll, yeah. you'll, you'll be you'll be done forever. All right. Uh, I don't want to dwell, uh, spend the whole time on the Kubrick versus King uh, debate, but I do have one more juicy quote that I, uh, I would be very upset if I didn't get a chance to, to say. Uh, once again, I think this is still from the 1983 Playboy interview. Um, he said, uh, what's basically wrong with Kubrick's version of The Shining is that it's a film by a man who thinks too much and feels too little. And that's why for all its virtuoso effects, it never gets you by the throat and hangs on the way real horror should, uh, which is interesting considering it is, you know, it is hung on, you know, uh, oh, yeah. quite well. Okay. I, um, I have to say, I, all the other things that I've said about what, you know, that, that you've said and that I've said about King's attitude toward the movie, that's the one thing that's been said where I fundamentally disagree with him. Yeah. I, 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 I think that is, I, I think he is dead wrong on that. I think because I, and, and this is a good way, way to get more focus on the movie. But I, I think that I think my view of Kubrick is that the way that we talk about him and with oftentimes the way that we talk about his films is 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 fundamentally incorrect because he has a, a, a vast reputation that I, I've grown up with, you know, um, my whole life and in all all in going through film school and talking to other filmmakers and reading film criticism the, this idea that he's cold or that he's that he's just obsessed with ideas that he's that that he's um uh into these kind of technical sterile idea driven you know stories and movies i think is to really miss what is 
great about him because I, my person, this is my little rant about Kubrick. I really feel that with each of his films, what he is most interested in doing, what he's, what he's most trying to do is to convey exactly the opposite of what people say he doesn't have, what King said he doesn't have, which is feeling. I think he's trying to convey a human emotion, but he's not interested in the basic human emotions that most movies capture. He's not interested in making you feel happy and fun and, 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 and making a comedy that just makes you laugh. He's interested in really complex in, 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 in a complex, but very specifically complex human emotion um, with each film. And so each film feels emotionally very different than every other film. But I, the more I have rewatched his films as I've gotten older, the more I feel like each film is an emotional tone. And that, and that he is interested in that above all other other things, and that whatever else he constructs in 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 the film itself, the center of it and the heartbeat of it is an emotional tone, but an emotion, but an emotional tone that other filmmakers and artists don't try to capture, and that that's what kind of interests him. And that's my own personal pet theory about him. But The Shining is a perfect example, you know, in that I do think that that emotional tone of Fear, dread, the horror of the possibility of non-existence and the, and the horror and dread of the possibility of life after death, of, you know, the, of the unknown, of the, uh, all of that. There's something in, uh, about that that is so deeply sophisticated and, and nuanced that I think it's the reason that the movie didn't succeed when it first came out. Because nobody had ever captured that tone before. And so in watching the movie, it was hard to assimilate it. It was hard to feel it. And I remember the first time I saw the movie, I didn't think it was the scariest movie I'd ever seen. I think it might, it's one of the scariest movies I've seen now, having seen it seven or eight times. And it's because I feel like I've been able to absorb over time the emotional tone that he had so brilliantly portrayed and, and put into that movie with all of his sophisticated techniques. And, and so I just want to make a quick defense against King's statement, because I do, I do think that he's in a highly, highly emotional filmmaker. It's just that the emotions that he's trying to capture are not broad. I think, I think I mostly, I, I know what you're trying to say. And I think I agree with it in theory. I would word it a little differently. Like, like I think that for as clinical and cold as Kubert could be on film, I think he was exploring the human condition is how I would word that. And but what, 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 mo- what movie of his is clinical and cold? Uh, 2001. Oh gosh. I think yeah, that, I, I, think I, I, I think eyes wide shut is pretty cold. I think they're all pretty cold, you know, but I, yeah, but I think, I, I think I, I, I well, my, I my only point is that, you know, for King to say he thinks too much and feels too little is sort of like, maybe because, you know, Kubrick was meticulous and very concerned with getting the tech stuff right. And that, that comes through when you watch his movies because they are, they are so precise and so beautifully manufactured. Um, But also the flip side of that is true. You know, where, where King for the story to have been this personal to him, maybe it's like sort of an immovable force versus uh, whatever object sort of thing where, he's feeling too much and thinking too little. You know what I mean? Like maybe that's what happens when these two sort of viewpoints collide as a movie like this. And so of course King wasn't going to like it. 
it was too personal for him. And, you know, he was sort of overthinking it. And Kubrick was sort of like, you know, um, strip mining it. And of all, of all the, all the really deeply personal shit that, that is in the novel. I think that's how I would look at it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I'm, I'm sure, you know, Scott will have his own thought. Um, Scott Derrickson, not Scott Wampler. will have his own thoughts on this, but I, I kind of feel like going back to what, um, uh, Derrickson was saying about uh, Kubrick's aversion to artifice. Um, I think that that's where his emotion is, though. Like there, he runs his his uh, uh, actors through the ringer very, you know, famously. You know, especially Shelley Duvall in this movie by wearing them down to get something real and and as broad as that can be, there is something authentic and something deeply human about that process. You know, of what he's able to capture there. So. So I don't I don't quite agree that that it's always cold. I think that that uh, Scott's right in that, you know, that there is emotion there. It's just more of a tonal emotion, you know, and, that, and, and that's that's yeah. the point. Yeah, because I think I think it's it's not that it's a different kind of it's an emotion that only cinema can portray. And it's an emotion that he's trying to elicit within in within the viewer themselves, not in. In, in a in an easily identifiable way in the films themselves. So 2001, I totally get why you could call that film cold. However, I think that millions of people share my experience and that I don't believe I've ever experienced a higher state of wonderment in my film watching lifetime than the first time that I saw 2001 on the big screen. It, it filled me with such a grand sense of wonderment at the world. And I think that that is what Kubrick was trying to do. I think that was the tonal emphasis that he was trying to get at in, in both in both the glorious you know possibilities of it and also kind of dreadfulness that comes with reckoning with how how mysterious everything really is. And I and I think that that with, with the shining it, it I don't know I just I really feel that that my experience is like so many people's experience which is the movie gains its scariness over multiple viewings because it you begin to absorb all the things that he's doing, all the all the the clever filmmaking and all the messing around with subliminal things and 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 the visual design and the oddball performances that are off kilter and and that you start to over multiple viewings you start to not expect it to do what a normal scary movie does or what a normal movie does in terms of story and plot and character. And instead you start to absorb the overall tone of it and the tone of it sinks deeper inside of you and you get more and more afraid the more times that you see it. And at least, you know, and I think, I think that's why the movie's grown with time because I think it took audiences a while to catch up with Kubrick on how to feel the feelings that he had placed within the celluloid of that movie. I hear you on all of that. And I, I agree with, all of it except one point, which is just that I can experience wonder and awe when I see 2001 and have it not be a warm movie. You know what I mean? Like I've seen that. I saw that thing uh, in 70 at the draft house a couple of years ago and it blew my fucking mind. I'd seen that movie. I don't know how many times, but it left me awestruck to see that thing right. projected like that. I just wouldn't call the, the movie warm. And I think you can accomplish that level of, I think you can you can cause an audience to feel that kind of emotion without without being without being warm, and I don't think that yeah really, yeah you know 
Yeah. yeah no, I, you're, you're definitely right about that. hundred percent right about that. And, and I would never call the movie warm. I, I think, but I think that, that, that really the main defense I'm trying to make here is, is the, the criticism that, that he's unemotional because I do think that he understood that movies are, are, are emotional machines above all things, you know, that they're, that it's an emotional art form and that, that, that what cinema can do in a, in a way oh. that other art forms can't do has to do with an emotional tone that, that, that is transferred from the filmmaker into the work itself and onto the audience. And I, I think absolutely he, agree with that. And, and, he, and, he, and he did, he just, he was just interested in emotions that are more complicated and more deeply buried than the ones that we're used to getting in movies. Agreed. Agreed. So I, I have a, a little bit of a shining hot take. Are you ready for it? Oh, I can't wait. I don't think the movie's as drastic of a departure from the book as most people uh, paint it, what its reputation is. I, I really deeply feel like they inform each other. Uh, a lot of uh, Wendy and Jack's interior dialogue in the book is said out loud in the movie. And a lot of what is said out loud in the books is internalized in the movie. And it, it's a really fascinating experience. If any, I mean, I assume people have time right now. Um, but if you're a fan, <laughs> I would, uh, I would highly recommend reading the book and like literally the day that you finish the book, throw on the Kubrick movie and you will see, a lot of little things like, you know, uh, uh, character in terms of character, because the big con uh, 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 complaint against the movie is that the characters are, are all wrong, that that Jack Torrance is, is a murderous asshole from the very beginning and that, you know, Wendy's, uh, you know, a helpless uh, uh, damsel throughout the whole thing and can't can't figure out, um, you know, uh, what what to do and that she's she's trapped, you know, by fear to a degree. That's right. I 100 percent will never say that that Nick. Nicholson, you know, he starts off at an eight and goes to 11, whereas, you know, King's intention was he starts off at a three or a two, right? And, and goes up there. But when you watch it, it's very interesting to see what Kubrick copies, like word for word. There, there's whole there's whole three or four page sequences that are just word for word the dialogue um, from the book, including uh, Halloran, you know, taking taking the family through the kitchen, um, a much of Halloran's conversation with Danny about The Shining, you know, all that's taken word for word. And when you see, especially Shelley Duvall, kind of grapple with the situation in the book, you get the benefit of looking inside of her mind, and you know, understanding that she's kind of paralyzed, you know, by fear that she's trapped there, not just by the snow, but because she has nowhere to go. Right. Like she she her only option is to stay, you know, in that hotel or potentially get her kid um, out and they go to her mother's house. And her mother is a controlling, awful, terrible person who's trying to get control of, uh, you know, uh, trying to get Danny from from her. So it, it, in a weird way, I you know, this the whole rambling thing is just to say that that I think that both the novel and the movie complement each other in in very interesting ways when when you uh uh, experience them both very close to each other fair enough mm. yeah fair enough i i, I e even the you know whatever it was the uh, first half of the book that i of the shining that i just reread i was struck by that i was struck by the fact that that in reading through it there was very little that i could think of in in this you know in in that section the first roughly the first half of the of the movie that wasn't the pieces are all there they are all there you know, and, and he, and he, I think it was, it was just about, 
you know, what he decided to, how much he decided to take out and how much he decided to change. What I think, again, my basic take on is to, is to change, you know, his approach to um, movie making altogether and not be interested in trying so much to tell a story as, as, as create uh, a kind of tapestry of visceral horror tone. The, the most, for me, the most striking thing, the most striking difference other than the ending, of course, and, and the thing that King hated, which is that this, the, the lack of humanity of, of, of the character. I get all that. But to me, the biggest difference on a storytelling point of view is, is just the, the, the narrative of the hotel itself. It's really strange mm. to go back and read the book and, and, and see how much sense every single ghost makes, <laughs> you know, how, how, and, and like you said, the Grady twins aren't in there. If I remember correctly, I don't remember reading them in the book. And, no, and, I think they they very they specify that uh, um, that Grady was alone, and that that's one of the things Jack says, you know, during the interview was that he's like, well, if you're worried about me going bonkers, I'm going to have my family here, and that's something that right, right. that Grady. But didn't like, have. The, but like yeah. the, the 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 woman in the bathtub, you know, the woman in the bathtub was was had a very specific backstory of a, of this middle aged woman who was having an affair with a younger guy and. You know, and was was uh, separated from her husband, and 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 this whole domestic drama that was unfolding there, and how she how she died in that in that in that specific room in in was two seventeen in the book, um, yeah. and and how all of the ghost appearances, everything that was happening, was was tied to a very specific narrative about about the hotel, the mythology of the hotel, and why the ghosts had the and that's and Doctor Sleep gave great service to that idea, but. Um, but to me, that's that's one of the biggest differences is is that Kubrick was just like, yeah, we don't this this creepy woman who gets out of the bathtub here that Danny is afraid in this room, you know. By the end of the movie, we still don't know what the fuck happened in two three seven, you know. Yeah. I mean, we really stay out of two three seven, you know. Don't go in there, and we go in there, and there's a crazy corpse woman comes out and. And they make out a little bit. And then we still, by the end of the movie, have no idea what any of that meant. <laughs> Never mind that lady. How about the blowjob dog guy? Like, he's got kind of an arc in the book. Like, he's like, you know, like a drunken party goer, right? He's like a good times guy that's running around and sort of storming around. Yeah, you yeah, only, yeah. You only see him in that one shot in the movie. And you're like, what the fuck is this? It's, I w- when, I was, when I was just rereading it, you know, uh, in the last two weeks, when I read that part, I'd forgotten about that, of course, from the book. And I was like... I can't believe I just thought that was a weird thing Kubrick threw in. I was like, Kubrick took this from the book. And yeah. in the book, it does, it does, it does make sense that this was this was a party thing and like where they got the mask, that they were into this and all of that. But he just like threw it in. And again, because I I just don't think he gave a shit about storytelling, really, in making that movie. It was all about what's going to create a, a disconcerting, you know, emotional feeling for the audience on the subject of the dead. And 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 of insanity and of, go, and of going mad, um, and well, part yeah. of the reason why the tone is so successful though is because you you're not given full histories on what's going on. It's just a shocking thing you're seeing as you're seeing it through the characters' eyes. You're not seeing it through a novelistic approach, right? So you're seeing you're seeing all this, you know, the way Wendy's seeing it. She doesn't know, you know, that there's like this, you know, gangsters twenty swinger, you know, right, history right. with mobsters and right. you know. And, and all that you're so you're seeing it as the characters i mean i this might be a good good place to uh to jump into the the miniseries a little bit um i don't want to beat up on it too much because it doesn't uh, it does enough of that by itself um but t- you know to me when you l- compare the two 
things you suddenly a lot of uh, a lot of uh kubrick's choices feel smarter when yeah. you see what happens yeah. when you draw out the story and you try to get every single thing that king wrote into a four and a half hour narrative you see why it doesn't work it, and, didn't and, king, and didn't, you, you see why it was smart to to streamline it a bit did King work on those screenplays? Am I yes. right? I remember that. Yes, he did. He, yeah, he wrote it. He produced it. And here's one other quick, uh, quick thing. One of the things that nobody really discusses about the King versus Kubrick uh, kind of feud is that uh, King wrote a script for The Shining for Kubrick, and Kubrick threw it out wholesale <laughs> and started by himself. So I, I have to wonder how much of this isn't just the adaptation, but also sour grapes of like, I gave you the right thing and you still turn, you know, turned it around and, you know, did your own thing and ignored my work. So not only did you ignore the book, you ignored the screenplay that I wrote as well. I don't know, but he said that, you know, throughout the, the entire history of people adapting his work, that he didn't really care about the movies, you know? So it assign that sort of, you know, kind of sourness to King doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't. It doesn't track with everything else he said. It's got, I, legit, the, the thing that makes the mo- the thing that makes the most sense to me is, is is that I've really never thought about, but it just goes off of you know of what you were saying, Eric. Is that that I think maybe it's just the the rena- the renowned popularity of the movie now. You know, just yeah. like the the fact that it became it became so. I mean, Guillermo del Toro calls it the Mount Everest of horror films. You know, mm. it's like that. That's something that that when it's such a, uh, a, a radical departure from what you've written and when you're, when your screenplay was thrown out um, and then it becomes that popular, I could see that. I could see that being something you just wouldn't ever get comfortable with, you know? Yeah. Uh, again, I don't want to rag too much on the miniseries, but I did rewatch it uh, before all four and a half hours of it cool. before recording this. Cool. Wow. Uh, so wow. I, I want to make that investment worth it <laughs> um, and talk, uh, well, I, I want to start off by real quickly by just saying that I'll give Mick Garris uh, a certain amount of credit because in the 90s, he was doing he was essentially ahead of his time. You know, he he decided to pick uh, stuff like The Stand and, and and this, you know, monumental task of redoing The Shining. And he tried to make it work on network television. And The, the Stand is more successful at it, but. You know, but it feels like if he was coming into his prime now, he would be, you know, with this material on on an HBO or Netflix or something, you know, he would have the budgets, he would have the, you know, the vision to to pull some of this off. So I'm going to say this, you know, and give him give him that credit. And I don't want to rag on him too much. But, you know, the thing is, 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 you know, rewatching that Uh, miniseries is it just it, it shows you the the power of the the adapter in the situation. Right. And, and that, that is something that um, is painfully clear when you, when you watch it, because it is something that it's trying to give every single moment, every single character down to the, the maintenance guy Watson, you know, blowing his nose. Cause he has a cold, you know, all these minute details that don't need to be there are there just because, right. Cause he wants to do right by King King, you know, wants to prove that, that, uh, Kubrick, you know, done fucked up his masterpiece, you know, his, you know, his, his book. Um, and the only thing they really do is kind of prove how much tone matters. And, and you, you watch uh, Steve Weber, 
you get and you get it. You see, that's where where like that is the end. That's why you remake that. You know, The Shining is you you try to get a redo on the Jack character, and and Weber tries his heart out, but you know, but man, like just pulling every single line of dialogue from King's book out and not really massaging it uh, kind of hurts hurt, hurts his performance. And Rebecca De Mornay, she's a stronger uh, Wendy, but she's boring. Yeah, she is so she is so dull. And it and and I'll give Shelley Duvall this. You know, her performance is anything but boring in in Kubrick's Kubrick's version. Yeah. Oh yeah, she's she's uh the, no 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 character has ever been more afraid on screen <laughs> ever than Shelley Duvall during the axe scene. But here's my question for both of you though. I saw it when it, when it came out, so I think it's true that it's very hard to compare. You know, a '90s t- you know TV miniseries were what they were. And and, yeah. and and what what a what a what a what a limited series was in 1997 has become something totally different now in terms of expectation. I remember seeing it at the time and thinking it was solid. You know, I didn't I didn't it didn't blow my mind the way the movie does, but I thought it was good, and and I certainly felt like it was a reminder of the fullness of the story that 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 King had written. So I, I guess I guess my basic judgment of it was always kind of like hey man is a mid 90s tv miniseries pretty good you know i didn't i didn't think it was bad i would i would hold on to that memory and not yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of my point though it's just like yeah i I probably wouldn't revisit it because it's a mid 90s television yeah and and it is so painfully 90s like the the costuming and oh oh boy but i i feel you because like uh, you know, I, I very vividly remember both the It miniseries and The Stand were events in my house, like because right. my parents had read the books, and you know, I, I don't think I'd read. I think I must have watched them before I read read the books, uh, either one. Um, but I, I remember the It was a two parter, and you know the 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 finale of of the first uh, part of the miniseries, like my whole family was jazzed and like, Oh my God, you can't wait for the next one. And, and, you know, and you go back and watch them and they do have the same, you know, kind of production value problems and cheesiness and, and, uh, that you would expect from a nineties, um, miniseries. But like, I don't know, like if you compare those three together, um, the shining is far down on the, the bottom Absolutely. for me. Absolutely, yeah. I think both of those, uh, hold up a lot better. I, neither of them completely successfully in the year. Yeah. But uh, although although only one only one of those has a cameo by Frank Darabont in it, and that's the uh, the Shining <laughs> miniseries. <laughs> well, now uh, I have to watch it. Yeah. Oh, and I I kind of I looked it up. I'm like, what the hell? Like, I mean, I get you know that Darabont you know and King were were best buds at this time, but I'm like, why this one? And I looked it up, and apparently he went to visit uh, the set while they were shooting to, and he was finalizing his deal to get the rights for Green Mile. And that's oh, he went to go visit go. King to talk to him there, and and Gareth said, "Hey, we were going to put you in the miniseries," and he's like, "Okay." Hey, can, hey, so can, there you can, go. Can we go back to one thing? I still want to talk about it regarding the movie. Yeah, uh, sure. Let's do it. Can we talk about the ending removed scene? How much do you guys mm. know about that? Yeah, yeah. Have this, you seen the it? Hospital? No, I've. Ne- is it? Where can you see it? I didn't know. I could you can't. That's why I was asking. It, it screened. It screened uh, once or whatever. That one screening and oh in New man, York that's like whatever. That's yeah. like uh, uh, day the clown cried. Now is that the name of the Jerry Lewis movie? That's like <laughs> yeah. That, that's now like that's something everyone's gonna. Everyone should, everyone should look for that. 
if anybody hears this podcast and has a way for a media, it, it exists. It's just being it's tweet, just being tweet hidden. It to me. Uh, I yeah. want to see it. I've I seen, really you know who you need. There, you can see pictures from it online. Like I've yeah. seen a couple of stills from it. Uh and it, that's not the only thing. Uh, who you need to hit up is Lee Unkrich. You know Lee Unkrich? Yeah. yeah. He's like the biggest Shining fan in the world. Um, I, I did a, a press thing at um, uh, at Pixar for Coco. And uh, I wore a Jack, like this a t-shirt that's, uh, it's a, a Jack Torrance instead of Jack Daniels, but it's all, you know, the, it's, it's right. the Jack Daniels nice. label. And, uh, and I had that shirt on and, and he was like, okay, you knew who you were coming to talk to. <laughs> um, and he, and he's like, here, I'm going to show you something. And he pulls out his phone and he shows me, he scans through four or five stills of Danny in a bathtub uh, having a, having a moment, like a seat, like one of his uh, uh, Tony you know, Amazing. visions. Right, right. And, and he said that he had gone to, um, I guess the Kubrick archives and was given unprecedented access. I think he's writing a shining or he wrote a shining book, like a making of kind of thing. Um, and, uh, but he was showing me all this stuff and he was just like, but it was just like crazy because it's the movie so ingrained in me that like seeing any different kind of angle or scene right. is as shocking as, as it used to be when, you know, when we were a teenager, when I was a teenager and you would see like a still from the, you know, Luke building the lightsaber and return of the Jedi that was cut. You're like, Holy shit, this thing's real. It really exists. So it's out there. Wow. Well, it's out there. My, my, my understanding, uh, I've, I've only read about it a couple times, but my understanding of it, you know, it's a hot, it's a hospital scene when Shelley Duvall is talking about, about what happened and sort of recounting what happened. And the only thing, the only detail I remember about it w- was that she's describing the events and she says that his body was never found. Yeah. And, and which, which is the thing that, that I've read about before where people are like, Oh, well, if, if that was included, then, it, you know, we, he, it was shot and, you know, that he, he froze to death outside the maze and all of that. So then did she take the body and, or is this, is this more off kilter evidence that there is no reliable narrator in this movie, that anything is possible. Maybe it was, maybe they're all living in the hotel still. You know? yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> I think it, it muddies it, the it, waters. It, what's you know, that? I think it muddies the waters at the end of that. Yeah. That it, that it, that it, that it basically creates such a massive abstraction and, and, and it creates such a completely and utterly unsolvable problem that, that it was probably removed. I'm guessing it was removed just because it was a bridge too far in terms of the, uh, the, 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 the weirdness and the inexplicability of, of the place. And you get you get that already. I mean, the, the very final shot of the of the movie is that slow push in on the. On the, on the photo that shows, you know, Jack's always been there, right? He, you've always been the caretaker here. Well, Kubrick, um, Kubrick, Kubrick said very bluntly what that meant. Kubrick, yeah. Kubrick, Kubrick said, oh, yeah, he was reincarnated. <laughs> you know, mm. he's just like, yeah. you know, that Jack Torrance was a reincarnation of that guy from 1921. That's why why they look alike. And that, and, and uh, my inference from that is that that Delbert Grady and, and Charles Grady were part. They were all sort of part of this reincarnated story somehow. But um, I don't like that as much. I I, I kind of just like the it's weirdly supernatural that you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> that I, he's I, there. I, you I, know that, that he's I, been part of the. When, when I heard when I read that 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 Kubrick had said that, I was kind of bummed. I was like, oh really? Yeah, that's I, that's not. I didn't get that at all. Yeah, it's the, you know? see, that's why it's okay sometimes to infer things and leave things mysterious and not tell the entire story. Yeah, <laughs> the feel of a magician explaining the trick a little too much. I think. Yeah, totally. I agree that feeling of keeping the audience off kilter was 
you know, something that was sort of baked into the movie with the, you know, impossible geography of the hotel and all that shit that, that Kubrick did where, you know, if you actually mapped it out, I don't know if you've seen that video online, but somebody actually went to the trouble of, you know, Oh yeah. Mapping out like what would the interior of this would look like according to the layout we see on camera. And it just doesn't make sense. And you know, you can read that one of two ways. One, one of them is, well, it's a set, you know, it doesn't have to. And, but on the other hand, you can look at it like, well, given what a perfectionist Kubrick was, it seems more likely that he did that to sort of work into the DNA of this thing, sort of an unsettling feeling where the, the Oh, for sure. Itself. For sure. I, 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 I think that we, I think that very too, too little has been made, uh, too little has been made about how much effort Kubrick was putting into that kind of stuff. I mean, I do think that's the one value that um, the documentary 237 has. There's a lot of weird, you know, theories that are thrown around in there, but I think it's hard evidence, you know, that things like the ball that rolls toward Danny, you know, him reversing the entire set just to get the incongruity of the ball coming down an open channel in that patterned carpet. You know, that's a, that's a big effort as a filmmaker. I'm like, man, God, he did 180 degree turnaround on an identical, you know, to have an identical view just to create the incongruity of, of the carpet pattern. He's really, and you know, I, I, the, I read the book when I was in college, uh, subliminal seduction, you know, about subliminal advertising techniques. And I know he was really interested in that. And he did a lot of that stuff in, in, in the shining, the playgirl magazine that, that Nicholson's reading in the beginning just weird things that 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 are off off putting and off settling and in Congress and don't make sense and seem and all, all of that. I think he was really really interested in 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 doing that and was and was deliberate with all of those things. And there's there's a bunch of them, man. And I think there are, and I think that, that it adds up. I think the added effect of it is again why with multiple viewings that the film gets more and more effective for on people. Did you know principal photography on this thing lasted over a year? That's just incredible, man. I didn't know that. Incredible. And it blew my mind. Like if I had known that I had forgotten about it, but today, like I could not stop thinking about that. I I read about that this morning. I was like, holy shit. That, you know, but, but when I watch it though, it does feel so disciplined, you know, in, in, in the look and the lighting of it and, and the way that he was constructing a whole world in, in many ways to, to accommodate, the use of, of the newly invented Steadicam, you know, to, to, to create horror and memorable images that, that could be done now with this new invention that he was obviously really interested in. And it's still some of the, I think Danny on this big wheel and the, the reveal of the Grady twins is maybe the scariest image ever played. And certainly the best Steadicam image that's ever been put on, put on film. Um, but you know, the, the and one sound thing, and, and the sound, don't forget the sound of like the, him going over the carpet. Over the carpet and on yeah. The, and, the rhythm of it, that. Right. Yeah. I think, I think, I think all that stuff was premeditated and thought through and, you know, but, and, you know, but the big picture thing about this movie and the effectiveness of it, that's, I think that one of the, as a filmmaker, I think that one of the biggest, most obvious things about this movie that is really easy to miss, that is so remarkable is that it is always regarded as one of the, you know, top three or four scariest movies ever made, best horror movie ever made. It's in, it's in everybody's list. And it is it is a movie that really runs counter to every other horror movie that you're going to find on 
any of those lists and that the movie is bright. It's just mm-hmm. a bright, it's a brightly lit white movie. You know, it's just a, it's a really bright movie. And even the stuff at the end, you know, I, I, I rewatched it with my kids a couple months ago and even the stuff in the, in the maze at the end, it gets darker because it's nighttime, but it's still got this really white sheen with the, with a mist and it's still a, a fairly, fairly bright frame. And, with and there's something, there's, there's something about, yeah, there's something about the way that it, that it really inverts the trope of the mystery of darkness um, and is, is playing with the idea of the, of the mystery of what is purely visible and inescapable, you know, that, that is part of its, of its genius. It's simple, but it, no, I can't think of another horror film that does it in the, in the same way, you know, that, that, that deals with supernatural horror and, 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 uh, and paranormal horror and does it with maximum illumination and wide lenses and brightness, you know? It's a haunted house movie where the ghosts aren't hiding in shadows. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It, every, it, you see every corner of every room you go go into in that in that movie. Yeah, so good. I just I have so much respect for it, and um, you know, well, it's, well, one, it, it, it's it's one of the few few horror movies are not movies I tend to want to go and return to watch over and over again. That's the one I want to return and watch the most for sure. Well, I think that might be a good spot to end it. <laughs> We've kept yeah. you for well over an hour now. Okay. Great. Uh, between the the novel and the movie we could we could probably talk for another two or three hours and still not cover everything but uh but i really do appreciate you coming on to uh to talk with us about oh so my pleasure guys thanks for letting me do this this uh this book and film you know they're 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 so magnificent I'm, i'm i'm really honored that i got to got to talk about these ones absolutely i think that given how much there is to say about the shining. I wouldn't be surprised if we ended up doing another episode on it. You could do a whole episode, just decoding the thing and going through like all the weird symbolism of it. But yeah, yeah I, I want to do a whole episode where we just, uh, deconstruct, uh, Dick Halloran's, uh, Florida apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I like his taste. And that was our episode on the shining. Probably the first of, of many. Uh, don't you think? Scott? Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of, um, Whew. as as the internet has proven in the last several decades there's a lot of uh a lot of nooks and crannies to Stanley Kubrick's Overlook Hotel and I think that uh it probably goes without saying that we'll be doing multiple episodes on that one before this is all said and done it's also one of those titles that's super formative for a lot of people right uh and I think that there's there's all there's been a lot of interest in in this from from some of the people we've reached out to and and I think of all the titles uh of both the book and the movie uh and the shitty miniseries you know can handle multiple Ugh. uh multiple episodes uh, uh but you're not gonna get that right now you know I think we're gonna try to give you guys a little breathing room with shining stuff uh we have so much uh backlogged that goes into all sorts of crazy king corners silly funny serious super big titles super obscure titles uh we got so much stuff but we will revisit the overlook i'm sure i'm uh man i'm not looking someone's gonna someone's gonna pick the mini series at some point and i am not looking forward to that i am extremely uh reluctant to to revisit that but i suppose we're uh we're gonna have to cross that bridge when we come to it i've already done it so enjoy yeah. enjoy where where i have been you will soon be well we've, um, we've re- revisited a few other uh mini series lately that uh really took a chunk out of me <laughs> like i am all like uh bad stephen king miniseries out for for a little while so hopefully um hopefully no one snags that anytime soon
Well, our next episode isn't going to be a mini series, which is good news for you. Uh, we are <laughs> yes. going from one one Stephen King haunted hotel to another Stephen mm-hmm. King haunted hotel, quasi haunted hotel. Correct. Would you like to tell the people what the title for next week's episode? Mikhail Hafstrom's fourteen oh eight. Fourteen oh eight. I'm a I'm a fan of fourteen oh eight. I like that one. I like the story. I like the movie. And I, I think it'll be interesting to follow The Shining up with this one. This is going to be a fun one. Good guest, good material. I think 1408 is one of the most commonly agreed upon, like amongst King fans. They everybody goes, oh mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good one. But nobody ever really listed in the, like the top five. But everybody yeah, always yeah. goes, oh yeah, that one. Yeah, that one's really good. So right, and it's not so John I, Cusack. Don't guess the guest is is John Cusack. It's not no. God, it's I'd Andy love to Dick. get Cusack, but yeah, it's Andy Dick. Uh, this this one's Andy Dick. <laughs> he is very familiar with haunted things. It is it's somebody that I feel like people have been sort of trying to will into existence uh, in terms of appearing on the show. And I think a lot of people will be excited by, by this guest. All right. We'll see you guys on the next one. See you later. 